You are listening to National Security Law Today. Hello, National Security Law colleagues. Before we begin our discussion today with Michael Atkinson, former Inspector General of the U.S. Intelligence Community, we want to highlight our newly released U.S. Intelligence Community Law Sourcebook, 8th edition. This compendium of national security-related laws and policy documents is more than an updated collection of statutory texts. It's a carefully curated and organized volume of work that illustrates how the United States counters a wide array of evolving threats within a rule of law framework. Our sourcebook has been proudly displayed on every national security practitioner's desk, whether in Congress, the executive branch, or private practice. It's a must-have resource, which also links to relevant National Security Law Today podcasts. For our podcast listeners, use code ICLS25 for an additional 25% off. The sourcebook is linked in the description in this episode, so definitely check it out or visit www.americanbar.org slash natsecurity. Here's Elisa. Hi there, listeners. I'm Elisa, and welcome to National Security Law Today, the podcast of the Standing Committee on Law and National Security. We've been unpacking what led Putin to invade Ukraine and whether he violated international law. So what was Putin thinking? Why did he invade now? There was a moment in our history when our relationship with the Ukraine and our presidential elections crashed together in a massive thunderclap that resonated across the globe. That moment was when then-President Trump asked Volodymyr Zelensky to investigate the son of his political opponent. Today's podcast is about fulfilling your duties as a national security lawyer, even when it implicates the president who appointed you to your position, even when it stings. And I'm happy to have Michael Atkinson as our guest tonight. He was the Inspector General of the Intelligence Community and is now a partner at the law firm of Kroll and Morning. Hey, it's great to have you, Michael. Thanks for coming in. Thank you, Lisa. I really appreciate the invitation to be on the podcast, and I look forward to our conversation. Let's set some history here. Um, History is people have short attention spans right now, same-day delivery, tweets, quarterly filings. Let's go back. You were appointed as the IG, the Inspector General of the IC, as we'll refer to it, which is the intelligence community back in 2018. So to the extent you possibly can, tell us about that process of being uh, nominated and appointed? Well, I was working for the Department of Justice's National Security Division when I received a call in April of 2017 to see if I had any interest in being an inspector general. And that call came from the White House Counsel's Office. At that point, in April 2017, I'd been with the Department of Justice for nearly 15 years, and I was honestly starting to think about going back into private practice. I joined DOJ's criminal division in 2002 in the wake of the terrorist attacks on 9-11. It was the age of Enron at that time, and I started out doing securities fraud and Foreign Corrupt Practices Act investigations. I moved to the U.S. Attorney's Office in D.C. in 2006 and rose to become the head of the office's fraud and public corruption section. And then I moved over to DOJ's National Security Division, which I know you know well, and that's where I met you in 2016. I felt in April 2017 that my career had sort of come full circle because I had made a concerted effort to go into public service in the wake of the 9-11 terrorist attacks. And I ended up at the National Security Division. I thought perhaps it was time to go back into private practice. But then I received that call in April of 2017 
from the White House Counsel's Office. And I was honestly intrigued about being an Inspector General. It would allow me to combine my experience in fraud investigations and my national security experience. I really found the national security mission and the national security space to be one of the most intrinsically rewarding experiences of my professional career. I explored the opportunity about being Inspector General in the intelligence community. In so, so many ways, I did not fully appreciate what I was getting myself into. Now, in fairness to me, I'm not sure anyone could fully appreciate at the time, in April 2017, what I was about to get myself into. There are obviously reasons why self-assessments need to be assessed for bias, and I'm clearly biased on my own self-assessment. So first of all, I had no idea that the process between that initial call in April 2017 and my Senate confirmation would take over a year. I was initially interviewed by the White House Counsel's Office, and I was asked about my ability to be independent, my ability to be objective, and that actually sort of reassured me that this administration wanted inspectors general to be independent and objective. I was then interviewed by a panel of five then current inspectors general who asked very similar questions about my ability to be independent, to be objective, and about my competency to be an inspector general. I then interviewed with the then director of national intelligence, Dan Coates, and the then principal deputy at the director of national intelligence, Sue Gordon. And they asked me about my philosophy of overseeing intelligence activities and my experience in dealing with, you know, what can be somewhat ambiguous uh, situations and complex situations. I apparently passed the test with Dan and Sue because I was told by the White House Counsel's Office that I, I needed to do just one more interview before President Trump would announce my nomination to be the Inspector General of the Intelligence Community. And that interview was with a Senator, Senator Charles Grassley who is known as the godfather of whistleblowers. And the purpose of that meeting, as far as I could tell, was to try to assure Senator Grassley that I was committed to protecting whistleblowers and to the importance of whistleblowers, particularly in the intelligence community. I figured I passed that test when President Trump did nominate me to be the Inspector General of the Intelligence Community in November of 2017. From there, I started to do meet and greets with members of the Congressional Oversight Committees, principally the Senate Select Committee on Intelligence, or SISI. I had a Senate confirmation hearing in January of 2018, where I appeared alongside Jason Kleitenik, who had been nominated to be the General Counsel of the Office of the Director of National Intelligence, or ODNI. Now, at that time, in January 2018, at the time of my Senate confirmation hearing, I was taking over an office that had tremendous responsibility but was also just a hot public mess, particularly with its whistleblower program. There were public reports that the former director of the office's whistleblower program had been escorted out of the building. The whistleblower program itself had been described as barely functioning. There was bipartisan concern, and I, I'll stress bipartisan, at the Senate confirmation hearing about what I was going to do to restore the whistleblower program and protect whistleblowers from reprisal or threats of reprisal. And at that time, I, I publicly committed myself under oath at that confirmation hearing to encourage, operate, and enforce a program for authorized disclosures by whistleblowers within the intelligence community that would validate moral courage without compromising national security and without retaliation. 
Again, I must have passed that test because I was voted out unanimously by the SISI and by the, the Senate's Committee for Homeland Security and Governmental Affairs. And I thought I was through the process. I was waiting for a vote on the Senate floor, and then there was a hold. There was a hold put on my nomination by one senator, a single senator, what I thought was the end of the process. And that was a senator from Kentucky, Rand Paul. And Rand Paul, at that time, which is April of 2018 or thereabouts, put a hold on my nomination and questioned my commitment to whistleblower protections, particularly protecting whistleblowers from retaliation for making a protected disclosure. So I had to assure Senator Paul that I would protect whistleblowers, particularly from any form of retaliation. So I sent a letter, I sent a letter to Senator Paul assuring him that I was committed to protecting whistleblowers. Finally, on the morning of May 14th, 2018, Senator Paul lifted his hold on my nomination. And later that night, around 7 p.m. on May 14th, 2018, I was confirmed as the Inspector General of the Intelligence Community. I took the oath of office on May 17th, 2018. And you do, quite frankly, have a reputation as a very principled person. So it's not surprising that you were confirmed. But let's let's go on. So you get this job and every job in the government has certain legal authorities beyond which you really can't go. But educate us right now, if you would, on what your legal mandate was and what the scope of that authority was as the inspector general for the IC. Sure. So inspectors general serve as independent government watchdogs whose job it is to prevent fraud, waste and abuse and to promote effective management in federal programs. Inspector generals have a long history in this country, particularly in the military services. Alexander Hamilton, for instance, one of our founding fathers, was an inspector general. He was the inspector general of the new Continental Army. The modern day, what we would consider the modern day independent inspectors general were established by Congress in 1978. Currently, there are over 70 inspectors general across the federal government. About half, like my former position, are appointed by the president and confirmed by the Senate. And the other half are designated by the leadership in the agency within which the IGs function. IGs have dual reporting obligations, and this is important to keep in mind. They report to the agency that they oversee. So I, in my case, I reported to the Director of National Intelligence because the Intelligence Community Inspector General was within the Office of the Director of National Intelligence. And IGs also have reporting obligations to their respective congressional oversight committees. So in my case, the two primary oversight committees were the SISI, and the House Permanent Select Committee on Intelligence, or the HIPSI. So by law, IGs are required to be independent of both the agencies they oversee, in my case, the ODNI, and of Congress. Now, even though some IGs, like I said, are political appointees, the law requires that they be selected without regard to political affiliation. Most IGs have their own in-house lawyers, as I did, to help provide objective and impartial advice. One of the things that appealed to me about this particular IG position, the Inspector General of the Intelligence Community, was that the authority of the Intelligence Community Inspector General, or the ICIG, that authority was coextensive with the DNI's authority, which meant that I could review any of the intelligence programs or activities across the then 17 and now 18 departments and agencies that comprise the U.S. intelligence community, or as you said, the IC. Now, other departments or agencies in the IC, like the CIA and the NSA, for example, have their own IGs. And there's a statutory provision that sets up a process to avoid any conflict. If I wanted to go look at a CIA program or activity, for example, 
but the CIA OIG wanted to look at the same, you know, review the same program or activity. The other consequence of having jurisdiction that was coextensive with the DNI was that the intelligence community inspector general could receive a whistleblower complaint from any individual in any of those 17, now 18 departments or agencies that was related to an intelligence activity. An IG office, no matter where it is in government, it serves a very important government service, is a great place to work in the federal government, and offers lawyers especially a really rewarding career. Okay, well, that's a fairly expansive authority. And let's talk about this idea of independence. This was reinforced in terms of where your office is. You don't have to disclose where it was, but where was it? Or if you can just describe whether or not it was located within the IC. So I can definitely describe it. The answer is a little bit of both. We had I, the Inspector General's of the Intelligence Community's offices. We had an office at the Odinai main headquarters, which are in Tyson's Corner at a facility called Liberty Crossing or LX. So we had a, we had a small office there. The main office was at a different location in Northern Virginia. And one of the reasons for having a separate main office was because of the important role that the Intelligence Community Inspector General played in receiving and investigating whistleblower complaints. So as we all know, there's a tremendous amount of secrecy surrounding the intelligence community. And that's for a reason. And that's because the intelligence community is effective in large part because of its need for secrecy. Uh, And this was reinforced at my Senate confirmation hearing by Senator Angus King, who just emphasized how few Americans have access to these really powerful programs and activities within the intelligence community, and especially sensitive programs or activities, which are known as compartmented or special access programs, the number of individuals with authorized access can dramatically shrink. So the natural result of this need to protect secret information is that there's a really small number of individuals in an authorized position to spot, and more importantly, to report inefficiencies or ineffectiveness or abuse or wrongdoing when it occurs with our nation's intelligence activities. So the age-old question has been, who will watch the watchers? And one critical check on the secret powers in the intelligence community are whistleblowers. In this context, it's really important for folks to understand, as those in the intelligence community are trained to understand, that secrecy is not a grant of power, it is a grant of trust. Our laws and the intelligence community's core values reflect the American people's understandable expectation that employees and contractors in the intelligence community will report potential waste, fraud, and abuse. They actually have an ethical obligation to report waste, fraud, and abuse in an authorized manner, particularly if it involves classified information. It's really important that they report that it, those allegations of wrongdoing through authorized channels because we don't want that information, classified information, being leaked to the media or to others. Another check on the IC's vast and secretive powers are inspectors general, which we've talked about. IGs are authorized to receive whistleblower complaints in the intelligence community that involve classified information. For certain types of whistleblower complaints, IGs are the only authorized officials to receive classified information. And those are for complaints where whistleblowers in the intelligence community want to report those allegations to the congressional oversight committees. IGs receive whistleblower complaints through a number of ways. We had a phone line, including what was called a low side or or publicly available phone call to receive whistleblower complaints. We also had what's known as a high side phone line, which was available to people in current members of the intelligence community who wanted to report wrongdoing involving classified information. 
We also had emails, both on the high side and the low side, to receive whistleblower complaints. And we would do in-person interviews of whistleblowers who wanted to come in person to talk about their allegations of wrongdoing. It's a long-winded way of explaining why we would have an office that was not co-located with the main ODI headquarters, so that individuals who wanted to come in person to report allegations of wrongdoing, especially involving classified information, would have a place to go that wasn't so closely associated with the Office of the Director of National Intelligence. And here it's important to keep in mind that IGs have a statutory obligation to protect the identity of a whistleblower. And the only exceptions are if the whistleblower consents to the release of their identity, or if revealing the whistleblower's identity is unavoidable, or if occasionally IGs make criminal referrals to the Department of Justice, and as part of those criminal referrals, it might be necessary to disclose the whistleblower's identity. So that's the third exception. Otherwise, we IGs have a, a really important and a logical reason to protect a whistleblower's identity because some folks just will not come forward if they don't have some reasonable assurance that their identity will be protected. Yeah, um, they could be intimidated or fear retaliation. I think that's or or even worse, given you know some of the more extreme examples that we have seen in the intelligence community. But let's talk about that because anytime you have a job where you're, it's almost a triage position, if you will, you get a lot of stuff. It sounds like maybe one of the challenges in your line of work during your time as the ICIG is that you get a lot of things that maybe they're not easy to read. Maybe they're not that serious. Maybe sometimes it's not really whistleblowing. It's more or less just sort of a personnel complaint. Is that sort of what happened? And if it did, how do you call to find that one thing in there that is of serious importance to your role and to the American people? Well, I had learned through the interview process and through the Senate confirmation process how important it was to both parties, to all parties, including you know independents, Republicans, and Democrats, how important the whistleblower mission was in the intelligence community. I viewed our hotline program as a sort of a, a customer service line, and our customers were the members of the public, as well as the current employees and contractors and in the intelligence community. The instructions that were given within the office, you know, was to take every single complaint seriously and to treat it with the urgency that it deserved. Some complaints that come in, you can tell right away that they're, they're not credible and they don't deserve a lot of attention. Others can be more ambiguous, particularly those that come in anonymously because members of the public or members of the intelligence community can make anonymous complaints. Some are detailed, some are more general. Some are very specific about the wrongdoing, some are not nearly as specific. So it's very important to treat each of those complaints seriously because what you want people to do is to trust the hotline. You want people to trust the inspector's general office to take a complaint seriously, to be responsive to the whistleblowers to the extent you know you can be transparent with the whistleblowers and to give the whistleblowers assurance by both word and deed that you will protect their identity no matter you know to, to the fullest extent of the law with the ukraine whistleblower complaint it was unlike any other complaint i had seen and so i knew immediately that it merited immediate attention Let's talk about that. You weren't in that role for a super long time when this complaint comes in. And so tell us what made it different from other complaints to the extent that you can. I'm going to steal a line from Jason Klytenik because when I first explained or disclosed the essence of the hotline of the Ukraine whistleblowers complaint to him, I, I asked him if he had any reaction. And his reaction was, I think I just threw up in my mouth. And so that's kind of 
what my reaction was when I wow. <laughs> my graphics. So hopefully nobody's having lunch or dinner or breakfast at the time we're talking. You know, this podcast airs. <laughs> Uh, they listen to it, but that honestly, it was it was that serious and, and that different from any other whistleblower complaint. I, I had been on the job about 15 months when the Ukraine whistleblower filed a complaint with the Intelligence Community Inspector General's office in mid-August of 2019. The Ukraine whistleblower opted to file the complaint under what's known as the urgent concern portion of the Intelligence Community Whistleblower Protection Act. So one of the primary purposes of the Intelligence Community Whistleblower Protection Act was to provide intelligence officers with an authorized means to communicate alleged wrongdoing involving classified information to the Congressional Intelligence Committee. So again, the HIPSI and the, and the SISI. And it was the Inspector General's office job to review that complaint, again, filed under this urgent concern provision to determine if it met the statutory definition of an urgent concern and if so, to determine whether the complaint appeared credible. Now, keep in mind, if you can't deal with ambiguities, you really don't belong in the intelligence community. So the, the statute, the ICWPA, does not define what appears credible means, and it doesn't define what urgent means. You have to look at the statute as best you can and interpret it consistently with the normal language, as well as there is some legislative history there to look at. But anyways, it was my job to determine whether it met the definition, statutory definition of an urgent concern, and if so, did it appear credible? Um, so let's go. So I, this is probably where your years as a prosecutor were incredibly beneficial. I do agree with that, in part because you do learn to deal with some ambiguity as a prosecutor, and you do learn to deal with complex you know, factual scenarios and try to take those facts and apply them as best you can to the law. And it also is beneficial because you're trained as a prosecutor to, to follow the facts wherever they may lead. And I knew very early on, within minutes, where this complaint was likely to lead. Unlike other hotline complaints that I talked about, the urgent concern provision is only available to, to current employees, detailees, or contractors in the intelligence community. Unlike ordinary hotline complaints, which can be filed anonymously, an urgent concern filing cannot be made anonymously. So the Ukraine whistleblower had to provide his or her identity to my office at the time so that the office could verify that the individual was a current member of the intelligence community. So I knew from the very beginning the identity of the Ukraine whistleblower, but I also knew I had a statutory obligation to protect that whistleblower's identity. And quite frankly, for our listeners' benefit, that isn't lifted. That continues and persists to this day, correct? That's correct. The identity of the Ukraine whistleblower, and I'm still bound by that statutory obligation not to do so until one of those three conditions, our exceptions, is met. So let's go back and talk about what the complaint was in general. The complaint in general was extraordinary. The office received the urgent concern filing by the whistleblower on a Tuesday, August 13th, 2019. Within the first six or seven sentences, it alleged that former President Trump had solicited foreign assistance in the then upcoming 2020 presidential election to try to get some information from the Ukrainian president, Zelensky, that would be you know, potentially of value to President Trump in the upcoming presidential election. Okay. And, and I mean, at least publicly, that information was that he wanted Zelensky to scare up something, if you will, on Hunter Biden. 
Yes, it was two things to to find information related to Hunter Biden's dealings in Ukraine with an energy company that he had done some consulting work for and to try to find the CrowdStrike servers, the servers that had been taken, you know, hacked into by some perpetrators to obtain information related to the Democratic National Committee. Let's talk about sort of what happened next, because you've received this complaint and frankly, the clock is ticking, is it not? The clock is definitely ticking. So under the urgent concern statute, the Intelligence Community Inspector General's office has 14 calendar days to review that whistleblower complaint and determine whether it is in fact an urgent concern and whether it appears credible. So what happens is, and and this does happen in the government, the filing was completed by the whistleblower on that Tuesday, August 13th, 2019. So that meant that our determination of whether it was urgent credible was due to be transmitted to the Director of National Intelligence by Monday, August 27th, 2019. You know, one complicating factor was that no one from my office read the whistleblower complaint until two days after it was received. Our 14 calendar day time limit which was already really aggressive, a timeline had already evaporated down to to 12 calendar days. Okay, that's no pressure. And then welcome to government lawyering, right? But it's understandable um, under the circumstances, in part because of the volume of complaints that come in, but also because you know, my office had received a number of urgent concern filings in the past, and none of those urgent concern filings had been deemed urgent. In fact, none of them were really even close to urgent. So I think folks in in my office at the time had assumed that this filing, like all of the previous ones, was not going to be urgent. So I actually ended up being the first person in the world, I think, to read the whistleblower's complaint on August 15th, 2019. And as I said, when I, when I sat down to read that complaint on that Thursday, August 15, 2019, I realized in less than a minute that the whistleblower's complaint was unlike anything I'd ever read. It was remarkably concise and well-sourced. You know, I'd been a federal prosecutor. I'd been an IG. I had seen many, many whistleblower complaints. This was by far the best written whistleblower complaint I'd ever read. I was also struck by the whistleblower's apparent expertise and what appeared to be, you know, have been a significant amount of time and effort that the person must have spent to gather, analyze, and report the information on the alleged urgent concern. I was also struck by the breadth and apparent seriousness of the allegations. As we all know, the complaint alleged efforts to interfere in the 2020 U.S. presidential election that allegedly involved President Trump, then President Trump, his personal attorney, uh, Rudy Giuliani, then Attorney General William Barr, and numerous U.S. and Ukrainian government officials. The alleged wrongdoing had culminated, as we all know by now, with a telephone call between then-President Trump and his Ukrainian counterpart, President Zelensky, on July 25th, 2019. So what I did, you know, after I sort of cleared my throat and finished reading the rest of the complaint, was to assemble a small team of two lawyers from the Inspector General of the Intelligence Committee's office uh, and an investigator who was in the office at the time to review the complaint. In the 12 days that we had, we conducted a preliminary review of the factual allegations and determined that the whistleblower's allegations, in our view, did in fact meet the statutory definition of an urgent concern and also appeared credible. I'm not going to go into the details, but we knew who the whistleblower was and the whistleblower in the disclosure had said that there were multiple U.S. officials with firsthand information, firsthand knowledge of the events 
including some who would have firsthand knowledge of the substance of the president's telephone call on July 25th. So in those 12 days that we had, we contacted a number of witnesses who were able to corroborate important parts of the whistleblower's allegation. So as a result, I determined that the whistleblower's disclosure was urgent and was credible. And as required by statute, I submitted my determination to the then acting director of national intelligence on Monday, August 27th, 2019. And who was the acting? Uh, Joseph McGuire, who had been the acting for about 10 days when that determination landed on his desk. Now, I had given both Jason Klytenik, who was the then general counsel of ODNI, and I'd given acting DNI McGuire a heads up on the Friday before I sent them my determination that I was you know, likely to find it to be an urgent concern and to be credible. And I, I gave them you know, a summary of the allegations in the whistleblower's complaint for a couple of reasons. One was I, I wanted to give the general counsel's office at ODNI an opportunity to you know, push back on our analysis. You know, they weren't required to provide that feedback, but I had a really good working relationship with Jason Clytenic in his office, and I wanted to give them an opportunity to sort of check our math, if you will, in terms of whether it was an urgent concern under the statute and whether it appeared credible. I also wanted to give the acting director of national intelligence a heads up about the whistleblower's complaint because I let the acting DNI you know, know on that Friday before I sent the determination on Monday that I intended to, you know, I was likely to find it to be urgent and credible. And that as a result, I intended to start an investigation that my office was going to officially investigate the whistleblower's allegations and that we were going to take action to try to preserve records at the White House and request access to the records at the White House, including records related to the telephone call. By statute, the DNI has the authority to prevent me or prevent the Inspector General Intelligence Community from engaging in that, in that type of invest investigation if there are national security reasons to stop or prevent that investigation. And so I wanted to give the DNI an opportunity to let me know whether he you didn't want me or my office to do that investigation. And that was his right. By statute, he could he could stop that investigation. Now, if he did that, he would have to inform the Congressional Intelligence Committees about that action. But, you know, I, throughout this process, wanted to make sure that the office acted within the rule of law. I wanted to do everything that we could to make sure that we follow the law and gave the DNI as well the full opportunity for him to exercise his lawful rights and the equities that the intelligence community would have in what the intelligence community inspector general's office intended to do with this information. And so what did he do? Well, he did not stop me from going forward with an investigation officially. The ODNI never exercised their statutory right under their authorities to prevent the inspector general from investigating the whistleblower complaint. So at the same time on that Monday, August 27, 2019, when I I sent my determination to the Director of National Intelligence that the Ukraine whistleblower's complaint was, in my view, urgent and credible. I also sent a document hold notice to the White House Counsel's Office to let them know that they should retain all records related to the President's July 25th, 2019 telephone call because the Inspector General's Office intended to begin an investigation either individually or jointly with the FBI into the President's call. The views expressed on national security law today have not been approved by the House of Delegates or the Board of Governors of the American Bar Association and accordingly should not be construed as representing ABA policy.